Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I asked Nicole. Whoa, don't give me the finger. <laughs> Nicole just gave me the finger to ask for a glass of water. Yeah, you um, entitled podcaster sitting on your yeah. sofa. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Are you planning on wearing that face mask throughout the entire recording? Can never be too safe, Sharice. You're literally sitting at home alone. It is hard to get a face mask in Asia. Yeah, well, Hong I've Kong heard. specifically. This is just for me to make my observation. It's like you're in the UK right now, mm-hmm. and if you wore a mask, I'm pretty sure you'd freak people out. Yes. But when you're in Asia, if you don't wear a mask, you're freaking people out. Good observation there. So I have not worn a mask yet, and I probably will not be. Dude, it's hard. It's like a a lot of people are lining up and trying to get masks. And a lot of people are trying to get masks from overseas. I do think the media is doing its job in stoking the fears of people. Is that the right word? Yes. Like stoking a fire? Yeah. Yeah. So I saw an interesting exchange that you had on Slack Yeah, that conversation really cinched my topic for today, as in what I was going to pick, because I had been looking around and hadn't really found anything that really grabbed my attention. And this exchange on Slack, I don't really share that many links on Slack. Explain yourself. I don't know. I don't know how to explain myself. I I really should have thought about this before I opened my mouth and said that. Um... It's not always clear to me if what I'm interested in is just what I individually, Sharice, is interested in, or if it's something that like a greater audience will be interested in. But I thought this was pretty like on the money. But to that point, like I think that's the whole reason why we as making exist is that we create or hopefully create context and give people a reason why something being shared has some sort of greater impact. That's a good segue to what i'm going to say which is that okay so this item of news that led to this exchange on slack is about spotify buying the ringer which on the surface sounds like not super exciting merger and acquisition news okay it's like a business bit but my own personal interest in this is always about media consolidation And that was kind of what I said in the Slack exchange. So I guess I could just read what I wrote. So Spotify buys the Ringer. I shared this link and I wrote, I have mixed feelings. I like the Ringer a whole lot and trust that Bill Simmons, who is the creator, the founder of the Ringer, cares about what his company produces and the well-being of the people he employs. So if he's on board for this, then that's good. The whole staff is going over and the website will stay up. So that seems good too. The bad feeling I have is this general unease regarding the further consolidation of media. And then 
A Megan member responded to me and said that they would be interested to hear an elaboration on why I feel uneasy towards consolidation of media. Granted, if the identity they purchase retain creative freedom. This was a good challenge to me because I am hesitant to declare that all media mergers and acquisitions are bad news. I don't want to say if it's a merger, then it's bad. And therefore, Spotify buying the ringer has to be a bad thing. But I do feel like a a movement throughout the industry where media companies become just a few very big companies is not good for us, the consumers. And it's not good for like an industry landscape that encourages creativity. And my rationale for this, and I'm not the only person who has said this, by the way, this is not an original thought, really, is that the fewer media entities there are, the less competition there is. And there's Mm -hmm. less diversity of thought, even even as much as a like top down authorities might say you have creative freedom. Ultimately, the stakeholders of the company are different and it's been clumped together. So now all of these small media entities share like a stakeholder and that will somehow influence like the output that they make. And in terms Mm -hmm. of like discouraging creativity in the field, it's because if there are so many very large companies the very new small companies have a harder chance. Like you need to have these kind of like mid-weight size companies to like balance out the field. I did listen to one recent podcast with Josh Topolsky and he talked about why the outline needs a bigger entity to support it because on its own, it just cannot achieve what it wants to achieve. I kind of jumped into this with the Macon Slack exchange, but I feel like I should give a little bit more background on the Spotify Ringer acquisition, if that's okay. Yep. Okay, so a couple of facts. Last year, Spotify bought Gimlet Media, which is a podcast network with shows like Reply All and Startup. They also bought We Use to make Making It Up, which our good friend Anna works at. They also later in 2019 bought Parcast, a network specializing in true crime and horror. And they also make Spotify Originals podcasts. So I'm just saying all of this to demonstrate that Spotify is really serious about podcasting and making this bet on podcasting being a part of their business and that how they will become profitable. So just this week, like two days ago, they announced that they're acquiring The Ringer, which if people don't know, is a media company known for a culture website and a network of 36 podcasts. The most famous one is the Bill Simmons podcast. And the Bill and Bill Simmons himself is like this very enigmatic well-known media person personality yeah very well known in the world of sports and extended i would say well yes more in sports but it does goes beyond that to culture and so simmons tweeted regarding this news this morning we announced that spotify is acquiring the ringer couldn't be more excited to work with daniel eck and his phenomenal team More details to come down the road, but Ringer will remain Ringer in every respect. They appreciate what we do, and they want us to be us. And he also says, We couldn't be more excited to unlock Spotify's power of scale and discovery, introduce the Ringer to a new global audience, and build the world's flagship sports audio network. And that quote was from Forbes, so just to give attribution. And then from the Spotify, these are very press releasey. Just going to read them anyway. Spotify CEO Daniel Ek said to Recode, With the ringer, we're basically getting the new ESPN. What Simmons has accomplished in just a few short years, it's nothing short of extraordinary. Yeah, they scaled that thing up real well. Yeah, 
he's he's done a great job. Like I really do think that like what I said in the Slack, like I think Simmons has done a great job of making high quality content and caring for his staff. And he's also recognized the union that the Ringer staff formed as well. So I think that he's a good boss. And so like the good news that I said that Spotify is bringing is hiring Simmons and his whole team is like good news in terms of mergers. Like that's already really great. What is interesting, this is the second thing I want to talk about connected to media consolidation is that, well, one, this idea of like, is media consolidation a good thing? And is it possible that Spotify Ringer is actually like not this bad item of news? But secondly, I wanted to talk about Spotify's plans down the road because they're not specifically tied to sports. And actually, I don't really think, and most people don't really think, that the main reason they're bringing on the ringer is to be like this new ESPN. Because it really seems that what Spotify is interested in doing is being a podcasting ad company. Have you heard about Spotify's... Hang on a second, I have to find the link. Oh, have you heard about this technology that Spotify created called Spotify Streaming Ad Insertion? Is it the dynamic one where you can basically insert ads and they can be placed relative to interest and they could just be like, hey, here's a slot and I can move it and put it into wherever I need to put it. Versus now where it's like primarily it's a host read, blah, blah, blah. Like now it's actually trying to play the role of a banner ad in a way. Yes, very much like a banner ad, like catching up with all of the web. And It's like you said, a dynamic insertion into podcast streams in real time. And they say that they can target listeners based off of data, like the demographic, their geography, their music taste, and probably more than that. So this is both really interesting and also potentially off-putting to some people. So it's interesting to think, you know, Spotify's acquisition plan is not so much about, I mean, they've been really good at identifying who to acquire, you know, Gimlet and Anchor and and The Ringer. I think those are all good decisions, but really it's about reaching more listeners. So they're not really interested in putting shows behind a paywall and making it exclusive to Spotify. They're interested in just building more and more listeners so that they can do a really good job of selling ads on those shows. And they want to establish themselves as, this is a prediction, they want to establish themselves so much so that they're selling ads on other people's podcasts as well, because they have the technology that makes it actually get results. I think it's a really smart move. I think when I said it could be potentially off-putting, I meant to listeners, but kind of depends how you feel about your data being used to advertise to you. And I feel like we've talked about this before. If I pay for Spotify, then it doesn't matter. What do you right? mean? Theoretically, like I've, I've reduced ads by having a, a, spot, a paid account. They actually play ads. Really? Even yes. if I have a paid Spotify account? I've, I've looked at a couple of articles. Yeah. So all of this info is like from The Verge and TechCrunch and Forbes. But Spotify actually, yeah. even if you're a paid subscriber still plays the ads in their podcasts so they're actually in the podcast so they're actually making okay got it twice technically 
is this is this where I'm like, oh, good thing I listened to things sped well, up because. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have like a strong opinion on this. I feel like for this, I'm just sort of talking about this interesting development where podcasts was actually a space where you could kind of feel like your data wasn't being tracked because the technology wasn't there. No one was really paying attention to like what podcasts and music yeah. you were listening to. But because of Spotify's like acquisitions and really doubling down on advertising and podcasts like it's going to become the same as like the social media platforms and banner ads on websites that we're used to and so it's not really yeah. anything new necessarily like it i'm not trying to scare people about like user data but it's just this movement of podcasts no longer being a place where you were kind of like free from free from those like observations or like that kind of tracking okay let's put it this way a more robust and mature monetization system for podcasts is probably mm. better for it we've talked about this but the difference now becomes that what made podcast ads arguably a little bit more mm. effective was the intimacy of it right it's kind of in the same vein mm -hmm. as branded content that's often done in mm -hmm. the tone of voice of the publication versus some random banner ad created by some dude who has no idea where it's going to That's appear. really interesting. But I think this same thing has also played out and man, like I think there's a lot of people that will slowly forget what the radio experience was like because it's the same thing. Like the ads yeah. on the radio were pre-recorded by somebody, right? And I guess you just had to kind of make sure that and hope that the media buying was in alignment because, and arguably, actually, you know what? Maybe it will be better. Maybe because they have so much data now, they know that that podcast ad selling you on the latest D2C cookware mm -hmm. brand is not going to fit on this sports podcast because they're just mm -hmm, all single mm -hmm. males that don't cook at home. Yeah. Making that up, generalizing, but maybe actually it'll make for better advertising. Now, I, I mean, it depends what you mean by like, better advertising because going off of what you said i actually want to clarify that because i think that advertising i you know you and i shit on <laughs> advertising a lot we just think it's a nuisance no, right I'm, just, I'm laughing because it's no true. for sure, sure like yes no I'm i prefer not to see true. ads Continue. but the argument is that good advertising exists when it puts me onto something that's valuable to my life right it just so happens that we don't feel as though advertising actually puts the right products and or things in our life that make it better, more valuable, more convenient. It happens sometimes, but the majority of the experience is so poor that we yeah. often are turned off. I think that this is in a way like it's it there's two several ways of looking at it, right? Like I go on my Instagram discover page and I mm. already know exactly what I'm going to get cuz I it's just like the algorithm's been trained and some people are okay with that, right? And some people are like, "Man, this is boring. Will I always want to have that yeah, direct yeah, consumer yeah, cookware yeah, yeah. brand. It, it really depends on what you as a user want. Because on one hand, like you said, if the technology makes advertising smarter and it gives it puts in front of you things that you are likely to find add value to your life, then that seems like a better advertising experience. But if that continues are different individuals happy to just always get predictable ads or would they be happier to see sort of a larger ecosystem 
of what exists out there. I don't know. I just don't know. Like, is it a good thing that you don't see the same ads as your friends because they're customized to you? Or is it better that you're forced out of that, you know, ad created bubble to see what other people are interested in? We all think that it's yeah, bad that's to what have I think. filter I mean, bubbles, right? But I'm also trying to think about like other consumers, like Maybe you just don't want to see products that you're not interested in buying. But I just think it's good for you in like an educational way to like know what exists. Yeah. The other thing that I was going to say related to like intimacy of ads is, so I listened to this podcast called No Such Thing as a Fish, which is like a weekly interesting facts podcast. And they do a lot of ads for The Economist, but every ad read they do is different. And they pick like current topics from The Economist to talk about. And I really like that. So I actually don't skip these ads. So I wonder with Spotify's new technology, if they can link it to also back to the podcast creators and say like, this is what you should do for the ad reads. So that at the same time, they have that like small scale intimacy feeling while still having the technology, like the data behind it to know what's going to be effective in terms of products. I mean, one more thought about media consolidation that I, I said on the Slack as well is that the effect of large companies buying smaller companies is that you can't just support the small creators. So now by listening to the Ringer podcast, you are also supporting Spotify. That's just the way things are connected now. So even if you just like personally what one staff member of The Ringer does, there's no way to really directly show that personal connection to that thing. And I think that's kind of a loss. I, I do wonder if The Ringer could ever have existed on its own without getting acquired. And my answer is generally no, because I think the big picture of what they're trying to achieve or what they were trying to achieve and i mean they'll probably still go on that journey is that it's far too big for it to be potentially supported by a non-advertising business i actually think. or like I'm actually the ringer bigger... was already profitable oh was it yes it was an already profitable company mm. and they run their own ads and so they were a Got it. by all appearances, unless there's something that the public doesn't know, the ringer was a sustainable money making business. But to to your point about where they want to go, it seems like Bill Simmons has like a bigger vision that requires more money and resources. I mean, that's the same reason what the founders of Gimlet said they did like a sort of debriefing podcast after they had been acquired and they kind of said the same thing it's like help some of the people that have gotten me here let me make sure they get paid out and hopefully let's build something even better than what we could have done on our yeah. own i mean i'm not i respect alex bloomberg and bill simmons vision for what they could do and clearly both of these people have like large ambition they see having money and resources as helping them to reach that ambition, which I get that they need. And obviously, this is like a huge, what's the word? Like lever, right? Like it's a jump start. Even if they could eventually get there in 10 years, now maybe they get there in three. 
But I mean, you and I, we've both talked about this theme is that maybe there's no, you can make the decision to not need that. Like you can say that it's sufficient to do what we are doing and to be the scale that we're at and to do that really well. I do think about it because when did the Ringer launch? Four years ago. Yeah. So that's pretty much the same time as Macon. And like, obviously we've taken far different paths. Uh, And I was thinking about this because I don't think that the Ringer is the type of business I would personally want to run. I just don't think that it's, it's what necessarily interests me. But then it's also like to achieve what they want to achieve is something that requires just a, a yeah. different level of resources, right? That's clearly the the reality of it. And I was thinking about this. I'm like, because th- this is sort of the the part that struck me the most was I I really think that when we had launched Macon four or five years ago, it was like, hey, you know what? It it's going to be this. And it needs to be this because I need to prove something. But now it's like, oh, actually proving something and the business it needed to be are actually mm. things I don't really care about. And maybe maybe I got broken down and mm-hmm. and that's sort of the outcome of it. I was thinking about media acquisitions and whatnot. And the one thing that we're fortunate in this day and age is that there are far more tools and a changing cultural landscape to allow creatives to do their thing and not necessarily rely on somebody else. Like you can, they can generally pay their own bills and they, they have the tools, whether it's Patreon, like we discussed privately the Intel that Craig Maud shared on his membership structure. Like I think a lot of people are able to actually control the narrative a lot better versus when I look at acquisition, I think that they will have to cede something. Mm-hmm. They will have to give something up. I do think it comes down to that. I think Bill Simmons from Grantland and ESPN and all of his partnership deals like moving from Medium to Vox has had big scale in mind and I think he he has a clear idea of where he he wants the business to be Uh, and he's doing his best to like honor values that he believes in like making sure all his staff go over making sure that the ringer culture remains the ringer and still getting the scale that he wants. Uh, and just I, I mean i respect that i totally respect that yep. ambition it's just not for every media company and i don't think every every new media outlet should aspire to that like that's not what is appropriate for everyone yeah they don't need to they don't need to and especially the ringer exists because it also raised money right like you don't necessarily need to go and raise money for you to build your own media company today although scale will obviously be a lot different, but that's kind of the nice thing. Go back 10, 15 years, you didn't really need to raise money either. I mean, you had Google AdSense and people were willing to click on ads and all this other stuff. And then soon it bottomed out and now it's kind of resurfaced in a way that creators and smallish media outfits can basically figure a way to monetize and to subsist. I think my last bit to take away from this is also like two years ago, I would not have predicted Spotify would become a big power in podcasting. Really? I I really don't think I did see that. Okay, sorry. Let, I, I don't want to like throw snark so much as no, that. No, that's fine. I always thought that at some point they would need to control the means of production. 
but it's basically they couldn't just subsist off of continually uh licensing right they needed to actually be the creators so whether it was musicians or something and like obviously podcasts just like bubbled up like they were going to control that part yeah i just kind of saw spotify and apple as music streaming platforms interested in making innovations in music streaming essentially and changing the way they do that but i think spotify has made a really good move by trying to differentiate themselves by going into podcasting because even though apple has had all of these podcasts hosted on itunes forever they've never done anything about it and so now it's spotify's ability to like make on that yeah that's it from me anything else you want to add who else will spotify buy next you think Ooh, in terms of podcasting Hmm. how is luminary doing because luminary are they a production company or are they uh they're a production company and platform but they really double down on exclusives like their whole idea is paywall content i don't feel like luminary is doing that well and cannot like succeed on its own and so oh luminary changed their pricing too didn't they like bring the pricing down a few bucks I don't know. Can you pull that up for me, Sharice? Yes, you are right. Hey, man, I see a lot of stuff. You see a lot of basically, stuff. Basically, it moved from $7.99 a month to $4.99 a month, literally just in mid-January. Scale requires a certain type of business. and like, But scale also, I think, makes it a little bit easier for you to get acquired, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, like, let's say Luminary actually was doing really well, mm-hmm. right? I think that... I mean, it's probably, if, if it's a profitable business, then that's a different story. But just like absolute users is always going to be a little bit tougher. Like I, as much as we all know that, hey, you know what? You'd rather have a thousand passionate fans than one million people that don't really give a shit. Like I think a lot of people still psychologically, like when you look at two numbers side by side, what seems sexier? Yeah. I'm still thinking about your question. No, I have nothing to add. I think that was a smart observation. I'm just thinking about your question of who will Spotify acquire next because I think they will. That that will come. Shall we move on? My topic this week is, and is this where I, I just come clean with everybody and tell them i wrote it while we were conversing i could tell because i was so so poorly prepared today i was just so busy well you picked your subject before we started recording so at least there's that i mean i'd read over it and i had i had a pretty clear point of view but the subject or the title of the piece is called heard but not seen black music in white spaces uh, i think this is something that most people who have visited a quote-unquote trendy restaurant have recognized that there's often a really strong relationship between hip-hop music and just the overall restaurant vibe. This story by Trey Johnson begins with a trip he took to New Orleans, and he discusses how much black culture is sort of intertwined with a lot of these cool, hip, trendy restaurants that he visits, right? And I think what's, I think what kind of drives it home is in the first few paragraphs, he has these few passages and i know it's long but i think it really sets the mood better than i could personally and i'll I'll go into that detail afterwards yeah because this is like a personal essay it's not it's not news like what we just talked about with spotify so go for it it's sunday afternoon and taupe south a restaurant serving 
regional Southern cuisine in the lower Garden District of New Orleans is mostly empty. A handful of patrons sit at the bar and at a smattering of tables. Everyone's white. The patrons, the hostess, the bartenders. In the open kitchen, I see the only other black person there, a brother working over the stove. But I'm hot and hungry and the restaurant smells like what I've been selfishly looking for. I'm down south and I want to eat southern food. My shoulders relax as I skim the menu. Then I hear Q-Tip's familiar voice over the speakers. And just like that, my shoulders rise right back up again, bound by a familiar string of tension. I order a drink and try to relax again. Try those familiar incantations that you get to release that energy, but it's too late. I'm taken out. But here it still feels unconscious. So basically what he's done there is describe his feeling of being in a predominantly white environment and then seeing the relationship and sort of the tension of hip-hop music. And he goes on over the next few paragraphs to talk about like in greater specificity the music, the artists and whatnot. And then he goes on to say, but here it still feels unconscious, disconnected, and I too feel disconnected. A part of me seeing everyone in here experiencing the music, patrons occasionally singing along with the little snatches of lyrics, the bartenders' heads bopping as they mix drinks, the chefs in the center island chopping to the beat, and here I am, black and alone in the restaurant, watching it all with a mix of horror and fascination. Before you go further, I'm really curious as to why you picked this piece. The story goes on to discuss the application of black music in places that generally aren't built and are conceived for these people, like black people, right? But they play a a pretty important part in like the underlying branding of the restaurant, mm. right? Music we we all think is pretty critical to like a restaurant environment, mm-hmm. and it quickly defines like the mood and whatnot. I know I've I've said a lot of quotes, and I'll I'll say this last one, and I can kind of get into why I picked this. Okay. Embracing black music is not the same as embracing black people. After all, no matter how often our music is created with a specific gaze toward our experience, how many times while our music plays have one of us been dismissed, followed, or harassed in these places, mm. in these spaces? So the reason I found this really interesting is just that on a certain level, minorities often have their cultures cherry-picked. Ravaged might be a strong word, but it's just that like certain parts are allowed entry. Black music, especially since it's very much focused on entertainment and sports that in those two places like that's allowed to be part of the overall cultural narrative but -hmm. if you don't fall within that you're not allowed in i don't know though about that distinction of you're not allowed in you're not allowed in but it's also not it's like as he as he kind of preface it's like there's parts of this whether it's the the, the pricing, the socioeconomics of it that aren't necessarily meant for you, right? And especially even the neighborhoods and all that other stuff. I just think that not being allowed in is quite a strong statement about <sighs> restaurants that this author also evidently went to eat at. I get what he means by like not welcoming, perhaps. But I mean, it's not in the in the most sort of objective sense he's barred from entry, but it's just that like, why is it that they are embracing part of this overarching culture, but cherry picking the part they want, but then also like you know not necessarily catering to a more inclusive 
environment. And I think this is maybe even part of a broader story. And like the reason why I also picked it was like, I think from a musical narrative perspective, it's like we've looked at how music and whatnot has played out, all the lines that it's created or not created. Maybe it's very, it's created a very in, inclusionary environment, right? I think you go to mm-hmm. TikTok, like how many of the videos are actually you know by an artist of color but Mm -hmm. the people that are promoting it and or making it viral are maybe they're they're caucasian maybe Mm -hmm. they're white right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i think that for me it's like i find that that relationship very interesting Mm. because it's like can this actually exist in a different way Mm -hmm. where you know what it's like or does it have to be a hey i only want this part of it well i guess what i can see is there's parts of his essay that are about new orleans local artists and also about how some songs have specific themes and topics that are political or like culturally relevant and so he kind of is critical of the way restaurants and the owners of certain establishments don't do research into you know the meaning behind music or the origins of artists so that feels like, yes, like it's a critique of people's oversight and like not not thinking more critically about music beyond like whether it's like popular or, you know, is something that you can move your head to and dance to. But I guess what I'm saying is that I don't know if it goes so far as to like this conscious decision to embrace black music and to bar black people from enjoying the places where black music is playing. It's like a, a soft gating in a way. Well, here, I think I think that he also he also has uh, these few sentences that I think actually touch upon the thing we're debating over right now. Now that hip hop is no longer seen as a threat, the way it was when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it's become the default ambiance in the kinds of high-end spaces that include few black people. When I enter one of these spaces, I understand in my bones the weight of that displacement. I start looking around Philadelphia and seeing a city that's gradually cordoning off the black community with bars with coded dress requirements and expensive homes that few can afford. I think part of my concern is also like there is a for for him implicitly in talking about like a socioeconomic distinction, like coded dress requirements and expensive homes and the cost of menu items. It's that plus race. So. Yes, I can see how, you know, restaurants being expensive bar people under like a certain income bracket from going, but technically that bars people of all races in that lower econ- economic bracket. But his argument is that you're you're taking my culture though. Yes, I see that, but it, it's like they're not, not they're not but the price point is not explicitly trying to bar a, a race. But it's also like isn't it kind of like teasing a little bit? Like, yo, this is like, this is your culture in these places, but I in itself know that like, it, if I look around, it's not really for me. Like, that's my argument. I feel like there's something underlying here. Do you feel like, maybe this is a very strong thing, but do you think that, that there's a feeling that this is forcing an issue of race when maybe it's overstated? Like, I'm trying to understand, like, I, I'm kind of seeing you, like, debate, and I feel there's, like, a sense of unease there. I think my unease is that, like, his argument as to the way black people have been excluded is related to pricing and related to economic reasons 
And it, but also hiring. Like he goes on to hiring too, right? Like these are well, like in the very- the hiring thing is complicated as well. At the beginning of the essay, he says that the restaurant has all white workers except for one black chef. But then later on in the essay, he talks about how the only way black people can participate in these spaces are in the service industry. So I don't know. I see a contradiction there in terms of like what he's saying as as to the role of black people, like either totally not included or like just in these service positions. But I, to go back to what I, I wanted to say is that, yes, I agree that gentrification economically excludes people who cannot afford it. But it's just that people who can't afford it is not a race-based measure. It's an economic measure. Yeah, but gentrification in itself, it's like, look at who you're displacing, right? If you're well, displacing it's very people, community related. Correct. So I'm I'm not knowledgeable enough about New Orleans and Philadelphia, and I, even though actually I did recently read a very good book on New Orleans called The Yellow House, and so I can see how, with his experience in New Orleans and Philadelphia in those neighborhoods, then the people who are displaced are, um, lower income black families. So I can understand that, but I don't think. I just don't think it's like an application across the board I, to like trendy just, restaurants actually, choosing black music to, and then excluding black people. No, it's, I think it's more of, I don't think it's like a deliberate measure so much as this is the reality. And I think that whether it's Philadelphia, whether it's New Orleans, I actually think this is far more prevalent than just those two cities. I think what is interesting for me is that what the quote you read about um, 80s, 90s hip hop being just like this universal ambiance, and it's just the fact. No, no, of- it's more he grew up. Sorry, it's more he grew up in the 80s and 90s, and hip hop was seen as threatening. Ah, uh, wait, but then yeah. he does say that now it is just. But an- now it's like it's. But now it's like accepted. Hang on, let me find the quote I'm talking about. Now that hip hop is no longer seen as a threat, the way it was when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it's become the default ambiance and the kinds of high-end spaces that include few black people. So he directs this angle towards like, these spaces include few black people. But actually the point that I would personally be more interested in is this fact of hip hop being the default ambiance in any space which is true also in Hong Kong. And I would say probably like a lot of, in in London as well, in a lot of other places, it's that hip hop has become this sort of like standard background music. Do you agree, disagree with like that? Totally agree. Yes. I totally agree. So that is really interesting to me, not just related to this high end issue of like, whether spaces are too expensive to include lower income bracket people or not, but just the fact that all of our like background soundtrack is hip hop now. And that is an interesting co-opting of culture to me. And one that I can more firmly stand by and say is concerning than I can confidently talk about like whether high-end spaces exclude black people. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, I kind of understand what you're saying. Like, when I was looking at this piece, I think it was more highlighting an observation than I was trying to like double down on whether or not spaces are deliberately trying mm. to uh, keep 
these types like keep black people out for example yeah people of minorities out i just think it's an interesting observation but it is an interesting observation yeah it's kind of like it's ironic right yeah that's the way i kind of looked at it there's a certain irony around it it is strange and i i can imagine that there is some kind of sadness associated to it where you see something that was very much your culture belonging to your people in this also really like defiant way like as in this is the way that we you know had identity and could express our voices and now it's just become everyone's and it's yeah. it's it's kind of been like stripped of meaning this reminds me of on a much looser less serious scale is that there was this restaurant that that popped up in new york city and it promoted itself as a cleaner and oh, healthier version of Chinese one. food. Yeah, it, it and I think down. that. Yeah, did we talk about this before? Mm, maybe, remember. maybe not. But anyways, basically, it was like Lucy Lee's, I think, something like that. But basically, these like um, a white couple created this restaurant under the pretense of like, hey, you know what? We're gonna take something that's seen as unglamorous yeah. but then yeah, make yeah. it make it more accommodating and we and yeah. it's for a certain demographic and i think that it maybe there's maybe it's a little bit like unclear as to, to how these sort of racial lines are drawn and let me get this straight like i think the the element of racial friction is both interesting and just like a reality right like we mm-hmm. kind of just need to understand how we can actually all coexist which is why Topics like these are difficult, but it makes me think and wonder, like, ultimately, is it overblown? Is it something we need to address? Is it yeah. something worth thinking about? When I put this forth, I didn't think I was going to come to any clear, definitive conclusion about this. So much as I thought yeah. it was like interesting to talk about. I don't and- have any conclusion either. I just, I, I also don't feel qualified, really, because I'm not of that background and so even though like reading through this personal essay i was hesitant to say like yes you're totally right i also am hesitant to be like oh that's not a valid experience you got american dirted basically what do you mean let's not let's not bring let's not bring back let's not bring that back (laughs) into i can't have another conversation with you about it all right sidebar american dirt look it up look up the controversy but just, you can just listen anyways, to our last episode. No, no, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it's just like an interesting conversation. I mean, okay, you brought it up, so I'll mention. I think that, that oh. the fact that we had that American Dirt conversation influenced the way I read this essay, because I I just wanted to be very careful to not be general about it, because I feel like Correct. one of the traps of these racial, racially tense conversations is that you become overly broad strokes to say you know this is wrong to do or this person has the only right perspective on it yeah and so that's why i feel like oh i just don't i feel like there's so many different elements of it that need to be broken down if it makes you feel better i also wrote it wasn't even an essay it's like i'd had a conversation with a friend and then you know i was like at 1 a.m and at 9 a.m the next day he like turned in like a like a mini essay and (laughs) i kind of american dirted it as well is that a new thing we're going to start where it's like 
you're almost afraid to to be overly critical of something if it's outside of your uh-huh. racial wheelhouse. Yeah. Right. But anyways, this was a topic. I like where, that we have coined this. <laughs> yeah. So so basically, this this essay was about how uh, mainland Chinese people need to really understand how they are to communicate with the rest of the world on the basis of like how the world works in a way. Like mm-hmm. that's super general, super general. But yeah. it's more like, but he yeah. he's Chinese, but not from mainland China. So it's like hard for you to be like, hey, this is how you should actually think of your relationship, and re- this is how you should think of your relationship in mm-hmm. respect to the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if maybe the real takeaway here at this point of our conversation is that sometimes you just need to read and listen, or I don't mean you, Eugene. I just mean like as a person in general. You, what is necessary is just reading people's perspectives and listening to what they're telling you about their experience and not trying to create an opinion on that. And I was reading this, I'm reading Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino right now. And the first essay is about the internet. And, what the, and one of the effects of the internet is that we've become accustomed to having to express our opinions in order just to have an identity and Mm -hmm. it's it's different from the real world where you can just sit in a room and you still exist like you still have a presence there but on the internet in order to have a presence basically you have to constantly be saying this is what i think this is what i feel and sort of it sort of conditioned us that like whenever we're confronted with a new thing or a news event we immediately start thinking, what is my opinion on this? Like, what is my stance? Yeah. And it's like... I like that. I think yeah. that's a good conclusion. Because like I said, I wasn't... I wanted to put this because I, I know that you would maybe have a point of view on it. Obviously, we are not in a position to like overly impose any sort of reaction, I guess. Unless I can track it back to something I feel fits in a similar vein. But being Asian slash Asian North American, etc. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that's a good way to kind of sum everything up. That was that was exciting. Was it really? It was. I was totally prepared to get into another brawl this week. Really? Why? I don't know. It's just it's just like I didn't know you hadn't written your notes yet. Oh, okay. I'm gonna do that but, going forward. By the way, the way this podcast gets put together i write all my notes and my thoughts and then i read eugene's subject and then i read all of his notes i i don't i don't i, I feel like that's like eugene doesn't cheating. Do this. that's like borderline cheating it's i don't know we never set rules to this podcast if you at this point in this late stage of making it up production want to keep me from reading your notes i suppose you can just not write notes which you did today and so I was like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what Eugene's coming with. Like, he could totally have a super strong opinion on this. That's Anyways, that's a good place to cap things off. Yes. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Charisse at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>